So in the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and his two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah, and, they were reached, and when they reached Moab, they settled there. When, then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women, and one married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. About 10 years later, both Malon and Kilion died, this left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed, the, blessed his people in Judah by giving them crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to their homeland. With two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness with your, for, to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. She kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, I want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go with me? Can I still give birth to a, other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters. Return to your parents' homes. I am too old to marry again. Even if I were to... Even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry anyone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than they are for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to the, her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for being here today. I am excited to be able to dive into a new series today on the book of Ruth. And anytime we get into a new sermon series, it's always a really fun time. Uh, it's just neat to kind of dig into something new and study and research and see what God has in store for us. And thank you, Rachel, for reading the scripture for us today to kind of set the table for where we're going to go in this series. And I also really appreciate the interview with Thrive. And there's a lot of parallels between what goes on with Thrive and the ministry that they do and some of the things that we will talk about today. Um, I want us to try, if we can, to imagine what it was like and put ourselves into Ruth's shoes and just sort of try to try to Put yourself there for a moment if you can and imagine that world. Growing up as a little girl in Moab, Moab is right across the Dead Sea from Israel. So over in what is now Jordan, you have the ancient land of Moab. And a little girl growing up there would have been introduced to all the pagan gods that you would have in the Moabite area. And so she would have had gods for, for a variety of things and uh, local gods, local rituals, all the things you did to keep the gods happy. And then all of a sudden, this family moves into town from across the Dead Sea over on the other side of, of that land, and they bring their God with them. Now, gods were often considered regional, and so if you move to a new area, you might actually 
add the new gods to your list, right? It's like, well, I still have an affinity for the gods of my own land, but gods were very regional, so now I'm going to worship the gods of the land I move into, at least as well. And this family didn't do that. They continued to worship their one God, Jehovah, and they didn't adopt any of the new pagan gods of the area. And for some reason, this Moabite girl ends up getting married to one of the boys of this outsider family. And I don't know how that happened, and I'm sure the details of that would probably make a good movie, but we'll have to wait until heaven to watch it because we don't know how did this Moabite girl end up marrying this boy. And of course, one of her friends also marries uh, one of the boys of this family. And this outside family, they don't have all these different gods for different things, for crops and fertility and war and weather and all of that. They just have this one God that they serve. And then for 10 years, as these two young women are married to these two Jewish guys, they don't, they don't have any kids. Neither of them has any children. Neither family has any children. And, and any of you that have gone through the pain of struggling to have kids and not being able to know that that's a horrible thing. But then this is even worse back then. Back then, it's even worse because um, not having kids, this was a big deal. It was a sign that the gods were not happy with you. It was a very unfavorable thing. It was looked at as sort of a, a sign that there's something wrong with you. You're a bit of a pariah if you don't have kids. And then on top of that, kids were important to the family business. You've got to have more kids to be able to work in the family business and keep that economic engine moving. And then the last big thing is if you don't have kids, you don't have social security. Multiple children were your social security program. And so when you got old, if you didn't have kids to care for you, you were often out of luck. So not having children was a very big deal for these women. I'm sure they struggled with that. And then to make matters so much worse, after 10 years of marriage, not able to have any kids, both of these boys pass away. And so we're left with three women whose husbands have died. And what are they going to do next? That's how the book of Ruth opens up to us. It just thrusts us into chaos, into pain, into hurt right away where we are introduced to these three women who are suffering and wondering what is next and what is going to happen to me. Since it's a new series, what I want to do to start us off here is give us a little bit of an introduction to these characters. Just help us to understand who's involved in the story of Ruth. And then we'll spend a little bit of time on the first section, this kind of this chaos right at the beginning, this, this painful moment right at the beginning where there's an important decision to make about what do we do next. Let's talk about some of the characters, though. As far as these characters go, the, the, uh, the father, Elimelech, he barely gets a mention here. I mean, he is not included anywhere else in the story, really, other than a passing you know, reference relative-wise. There's really not much to say about Elimelech, other than he was the patriarch of the family. And for whatever reason, he felt it was a good idea to leave Israel and move to Moab. And, and the, some, some people have criticized Elimelech for this. They think that maybe he was being untrusting to God. And leaving Israel? I'm not so sure. I don't know if I would be quick to judge Elimelech for looking around and seeing, wow, there is not enough food here for my family. I wonder if we'll actually be better cared for if we move to a place where it sounds like there is plenty of food. In rabbinical literature, you'll find a lot of uh, Jewish scholars who will criticize Elimelech for this move. And maybe they're right. I don't know. Uh, but the Bible doesn't seem to indicate that there was something spiritually or morally wrong with Elimelech deciding we're going to leave the land of Judah and we're going to move over to Moab for a time to take care of the family. So I would give him the benefit of the doubt here. Either way, what we know is that God is going to work through this situation in an incredible way. 
And if they had not moved to Moab, there's some amazing stuff that God wouldn't have, wouldn't have done and we wouldn't have recorded for us. So God worked all of this out for good. I do want to talk a little bit about the famine that Elimelech was running from because it seems like there might be a little clue as to why this famine was going on in the book of Ruth. In the first verse of Ruth 1, we read that this was in the days when the judges ruled in Israel. So that's important. The judges ruled in Israel and a severe famine came upon the land. And so we're wondering, why is there this severe famine? What is going on in the land that would cause him to have to leave? And many people have wondered about this. Well, the days of the judges was a period when the nation of Israel was ruled over by people called judges instead of by kings. And judges were individuals that were civic leaders. They were responsible to God. They were to lead the people of Israel according to God's principles. But they weren't necessarily the religious leaders. They weren't the priests. They weren't the Levites. But they were the civil, civic leaders of the people. So if there was an enemy that was attacking Israel, then the judges would rally the troops and they would go defend and fight the enemy. And during times of peace, the judges would hold court and people would bring them cases and they would try them and they would make judgments and decisions. They were, they were judges. So this all happens in the days of the judges. And the important thing to know about the days of the judges is that while judges ruled over Israel, these were cycles of good times and bad times. And so you had one generation that would follow God and obey his commands and do well. And then another generation or two later, the kids would just abandon that and they would go do their own thing. And they wouldn't follow God at all. We see an example of this in Judges chapter 2. So just to kind of give you an example of what this looked like. In Judges 2 verse 10, we read that after that generation died, which was a good generation that followed God, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They didn't remember all the good stuff he did for them. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. Now, why is this such a, a big deal? Well, God told the Israelites back in the book of Leviticus, if you obey my commands and you follow after me, then I am going to bring the seasonal rains and your crops will produce a great harvest and your trees will produce great fruit. That was one of the promises that he gave. But he says a little bit later in the same chapter, if you do not follow my commands, then you will plant your crops in vain. In other words, you're going to have food problems. And so it seems very likely that since this is happening in the days of the judges, that probably this is a judgment against Israel because a lot of people in the land have turned against God. And maybe that is why they're experiencing famine. In fact, a little bit later on, you'll see in Ruth that when Naomi heads back, it's because she thinks God has now blessed Israel again. And brought crops again. So there's a good indication that maybe this was a judgment famine that was going on in the, in the nation of Israel. And that's why they had to get out of town. Either way, Elimelech had two sons that he took with him, Malon and Kilion. We know almost nothing about Malon and Kilion other than that those would make great Star Trek names. Malon and Kilion. Doesn't that just sound like that could be an alien, you know, with a deformed face or something? Got to have all the same you know, body parts down here because you got to have a, a normal actor portray them. But so Malon and Kilion, and they've got their own language. But other than that, we know that they married Moabite women. And they didn't really have much of a choice. They had to marry Moabite women. It does seem strange that they were not marrying Jewish women. I mean, this would have been very important to them to, to keep a like-minded faith in the relationship. I don't know if there were other Jewish families that went with them, but 
those, the boys weren't interested in any of those girls. I don't know if, um, if Elimelech just moved to this area with, with just his family and there weren't any other options there. But somehow they end up married to Moabite women. Not an ideal situation. Not something you want to see happen. Because if you've got these women that were raised in a completely pagan culture with all these different gods and they don't have the same kind of um, sets of standards and, and morality that you would have coming from the Jewish faith, you're not so sure about how that is going to develop. But what we see in the process here is that it seems like these women actually accepted Jehovah as their God. And, and whether or not they continued to follow him or not, they at least while they were married seemed to have abandoned the pagan gods and accepted the God of Israel. And we see that because when Naomi says, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her family and their gods, it's gone back to their God. So it looks like she had left them and was now going back to them a little bit later in the story. But we don't know much else about Elimelech's boys, Malon and Kilion. The men get barely a mention here, and really the story is all about the women. And one woman we won't have too much to talk about is Orpah. Orpah is best known for her TV show and her book club. Maybe you have seen that. You think I'm joking, but I'm actually telling you 100% the truth. Her real name is Orpah. Did you know that? Her real, and her, on her birth certificate, it says Orpah Winfrey. She was named after this woman, Orpah. And because people kept pronouncing it wrong, she just rolled with it and kept Oprah forever. And that became a huge thing for her. But Orpah Winfrey, it doesn't roll off the tongue as well. I can see why you might want to change that. We don't know a lot about Orpah either, other than that she is a Moabite woman. She marries this Jewish guy from out of town and ends up his widow, sadly. And she wants to stay with her mother-in-law at first. In fact, Naomi and the two girls head back toward Judah. And along the way, Naomi stops and says, no, I think you should go back. And Orpah first protests, but then she does end up going back to her family and to her gods. Most of our time in this series will, of course, be spent getting to know Naomi and Ruth, especially Ruth. But let's talk about Naomi for a little bit. The the matriarch of the family, the mother-in-law to Ruth and Orpah. Naomi, by the time we are introduced to her, is a very bitter woman. She blames God for what has happened to her. She's she's not just thinking God allowed these things to happen. She is thinking God caused these things to happen. And she is broken. And she is devastated. And she is in so much pain. Uh, And maybe you can relate to her. Maybe you're in a a season of life right now where there's so much pain in your life because of something that has happened to you, something that's going on in your life that is causing you so much pain, and you just start questioning, will I ever smile again? Will I ever laugh again? Could I ever be happy again? Isn't my life basically over? I'm just going to be miserable for the rest of my life. And and this is Naomi. Naomi thinks she's going to be miserable for the rest of her life. In fact, a little bit later, when she gets into Judah, we'll see next week, and this is a little spoiler, but she is going to tell the people that knew her from before, don't call me Naomi, Naomi anymore, call me Mara, which means bitter. I literally want to change my name to bitter because that's how identified she is now with being this bitter woman because of everything that's happened to her. She's internalized it completely and she's struggling so much with this. Have you ever felt like that? Like, man, my life is just terrible. It's, will it ever get good again? Does it ever get better with what I just went through. Now here's the big spoiler alert. 
Once we get to the end of this, we are going to see Naomi rejoice and happy and full of joy. We're going to see incredible things in her life, and she is going to feel so blessed, and she's going to look back and see, wow, look what God did after all this pain in my life. But in this moment right now, she's not thinking about that. She doesn't realize what God is going to do in the future and what comes after her pain. In the middle of the pain, it is so hard to see what God is doing, and yet he is working. Then there's Ruth. Ruth is the one we're going to get to know the most throughout this series. She's an amazing woman, an inspiring woman. I'm sure she wasn't perfect, but she's really presented here in Scripture as a breath of fresh air. When you've got Elimelech who dies and Malon and Kilion who die, and then you've got Orpah who turns away, and you've got Naomi who's so bitter she wants to change her name, and you've got, then you've got Ruth who is just this breath of fresh air. She's a faithful and steady presence in a chaotic world. Someone who is loyal and trustworthy, even when she has a good reason to leave. Ruth is a beautiful example of a godly woman and what we call a Proverbs 31 woman. She's kind and industrious and hardworking and, and caring and compassionate and bold and humble all at the same time. I'm sure she didn't always feel that capable. We have evidence of that in the story. There were times when she doesn't know what to do and things feel insecure, and I'm sure you can relate to that as well. Sometimes... Inside, we're a little ball of turmoil, and outside, people think we have it all together. But everybody's got some kind of brokenness and pain inside. Everybody's struggling with different things. And some of the people you look at and you think, man, they've got it all figured out. Their life is just awesome, and they're so godly, and they've got such strong faith. And the reality is you just don't know the struggles that they have inside, the difficulties that they deal with, the insecurities that they wrestle with. Some of the people that we look at and think they've got it all figured out are, are, are just like the, like the ducks paddling on the water. We're on the top of the water. You see the ducks smoothly paddle along and underneath those feet are just going like crazy. Underneath the water is just turmoil. It's what a lot of our lives are like. I think that's often the case. What makes this story about Ruth so incredible is that she wasn't Jewish. She was from this pagan world of Moab. She was not the ideal vision of what a Jewish wife is supposed to be. She grew up in a completely different environment and culture. And so the fact that Ruth is now this picture, that all the, all the Jewish people like Naomi, you know, Elimelech and Malon and Kilian, they're gone. And Naomi here is all bitter. And here's Ruth, this outsider, this Moabite woman who is just this picture of stability and care and loyalty and compassion. And she's an outsider. She's a Moabite woman. It's amazing. And yet, is there a woman that's more honored in scripture other than Mary and Esther? I mean, Ruth is right up there. It certainly should teach us never to write people off because they don't fit the mold of what we think God can do or, or work through. Uh, because look what God did through Ruth. It looks like Limelech's family loved these girls, Orpah and Ruth. It looks like they, because they wanted to stay with Naomi. It looks like they showed her what it was like to serve Jehovah God and what a difference that can make in your life. And so they wanted to stay with Naomi. And Ruth is a great example of that. So that's the background. That's the context of these characters as we dive into this story. Now look at the first chapter with me. If you've got your Bible there, Ruth chapter one, verse three, we're gonna start and we're just going to read through some of this and, and see what we learn from this story, specifically about how we address the pain that we experience and the hurt that we experience in life. And I'm sure this will be relevant for, for many of us here today or watching online right now. Ruth chapter 1, verse 3 says, Then Elimelech died, 
And Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah and the other a woman named Ruth. But about 10 years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. I want you to notice something here, which is the emphasis the author, who's probably Samuel, gives us for Naomi being alone. This left Naomi alone, utterly alone. Three tragedies in one family. Elimelech probably died shortly after arriving in Moab, and this was unexpected because he wasn't moving his family there as he was severely ill or near death or very old in years. It was probably expected that they were going to move there for a time, weather the storm, the famine that was in Israel, and then when it was okay, they would move back. That was probably the plan that they had. It certainly, I don't think, would have been the plan to move the family away from all their relatives and all of their support system back home if Elimelech was near death. So this was probably a shock. Shortly after they moved to Moab, Elimelech passes away. And, and this was so unexpected. I'm sure it shook Naomi to her core. And she went on for another 10 years then before the unthinkable happened. Her sons both pass away. This is not how it's supposed to be. Parents aren't supposed to bury their children. It's supposed to work the other way around. And yet here she is with all of her family gone. And the author wants us to know she is utterly alone. The author wants us to experience and just feel the pain that she is going through. She is a bitter, hurt, pained woman who is never supposed to be like this, especially not in Moab. Verse 13 gives us a really good window into this. She says, in the second half of the verse, things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like, man, God, God himself must be against me? I feel like all of us have probably been there at some point. Uh, things are more bitter for me than anyone else. No one understands the pain that I'm going through. I'm all alone. I have no hope. And God himself has turned against me. She's not even asking the question, God, why are you doing this to me? And I know a lot of us have asked that question. God, why are you doing this to me? That's not what Naomi's asking. Naomi is beyond that. Naomi is saying, God, you did this to me. This is because of you. The Lord himself has raised his fist against me. She is so hurt and so broken. I think all of us can relate to that because at some point in our life, all of us will experience great pain. We will all experience incredible pain in life at some point or another. I think it's worth exploring the reasons for that. Why do we experience pain? This can help us to understand where, where it often comes from. Sometimes it's not what we think. So sometimes we experience pain in life because of the broken world that we are in. It's a world that God created perfect, but because of sin and the curse, there is now disease, there's natural disaster. There are all sorts of bad things that happen in this world. That's not how God originally created it, but it's the result of sin in the broken world. And so we experience pain sometimes because something happened that was beyond our control and not caused by anyone else. And sometimes that's where the pain comes from. Sometimes our pain is the result of our own poor choices. There are times when we don't really like it, but if we were being really honest with ourselves, we'd have to admit, I contributed to this situation. I caused some of this by doing the wrong things or not doing the right things. Sometimes it's the result of other people's poor choices. Sometimes it's not anything we actually did ourselves, but other people made foolish choices or sinful choices or, or did things that ended up having consequences for us because we, we live in a world where people can make choices and those choices have consequences and it's not just consequences for us. Your choices may have consequences for other people and theirs may have consequences for you. And so sometimes you will experience pain in life because someone else did something 
and there's a consequence that occurs in your life. Sometimes our pain is the result of God's discipline. Hebrews 12 reminds us that God disciplines his children who he loves. In fact, it even says if you never experience discipline in your life, then there's reason to be concerned because you want to be God's child who he disciplines, who he loves. The author goes on to say, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So sometimes our pain is the result of God disciplining us. And sometimes it's God's timing or God's answer. Sometimes there's pain in waiting on God's timing or in God saying no. It makes me think of Paul with this thorn in the flesh. I'm sure you've heard of this many times. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that to keep him from becoming proud, he was given a thorn in his flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment him and keep him from becoming proud. Then he says, three times I begged the Lord to take it away. And each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness, which is a really nice way of saying no. I am not going to take away the pain that you are experiencing because I actually want you to go through this pain. I need you to have this pain in your life. And for the couple that is desperately trying to get pregnant or the employee that's trying to get noticed or the single person that's waiting to find the right person to spend the rest of their life with and all the other things that we wait on or aren't sure if the answer might be no, that causes us pain. And sometimes the pain we experience in life is because we are waiting or, or because God has said no, and sometimes there's pain in not knowing whether the answer is a wait or a no, because we're just not sure. But all of us experience pain in life. It's, it's just a part of the human condition. Probably some of the people you think have it most pulled together have pain in their life that you don't even know. So how do we respond to that pain? That's the question. What are we going to do with that pain? We're going to see some examples here in the story of Naomi and Ruth. We're going to start by looking at what Naomi did. In verse 6, if you'll read along with me, Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again, they wept together and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. So what does Naomi do in the middle of her pain? What does she do? Well, First of all, she allows bitterness to creep in and stick around. She lets bitterness get a foothold in her life, and she continues to become more and more bitter until it's a part of her identity where she ends up saying, I want to be called bitter because that's how bitter I am. She, she allows this to become such a huge part of her life. She also attempts to isolate herself. 
She, she was pushing her daughters-in-law away. And, and you could argue that, well, she might have some good reasons for that. Maybe she's looking out for them. But I would point out to you that she's telling them to go back to paganism. She's telling them to go back to pagan gods. Surely that cannot be what's best for them. And so she's pushing these daughters-in-law away when she, really they should be sticking together here. She's isolating herself. And then, of course, she blames God for what happened to her as if he caused all of this just for her, as if God is up there in heaven and going, I want to make Naomi's life miserable just because. And so she says, the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And then she seems to have given up all hope. She's just given up the idea that things are ever going to get better. She's assumed this kind of victim persona Because of her circumstances, her life is miserable and it will always be miserable. And so she's just going to go back to Israel so it can be miserable there. That's her plan. That's how Naomi's responding to pain. How do do you and I respond to pain? We do a lot of the same things, don't we? When we experience pain, sometimes we just run away from it. We don't want to deal with it anymore. Sometimes we isolate. We push away the people that we actually should be leaning on to help us get through the painful times. We, we lock ourselves up and we, we don't let anyone in. We don't let anyone see the pain that we're experiencing. It's incredibly unhealthy. We self-medicate with all kinds of different unhealthy things, things that can distract us, things that can dull the pain a little bit. But the truth is it only makes the problem worse because we can get addicted to those things. And, and it just causes us to not deal with the issue that's really going on in our life. We repress the pain. We try to pretend like it's not there or ignore it or pour ourselves into our our work or something else to keep us from experiencing the pain that we are feeling because we don't want to deal with it. We don't want to address it. So let's talk briefly here about a healthy response to pain. What's a biblical response to pain? Let's start by learning from Ruth herself. In verse 16, Ruth says, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. See, Ruth has not given up on her family or her relationships. Ruth has not given up on Naomi. Ruth hasn't even given up on God, who is not the God she grew up with. In fact, she's more committed than ever. She says, I will stand by you until death. I will continue to worship the God that you introduced me to. And I will do that forever. Understand here, it's not that Ruth wasn't also in pain. It's not that she wasn't also mourning. She just lost her husband. And here's the prospect of her losing her relationship with her mother-in-law. That's why she broke down and wept. And she's clinging to Naomi and, and saying, I don't want to leave you. I don't want to lose you. I don't want to isolate. I don't want to be away from you. We will get through this together. We will get through this together. It's not that she's not mourning or in pain. But her response is so much healthier. She's going to continue to trust in God. She's going to continue the relationship with Naomi, and they will get through this together. And what I want to talk about here just at the end is is ways that we can find God and trust in God and get through some of our most painful, darkest moments with a healthy response. I want to give you seven things you can do. There's seven things, and maybe there's more. These are just the seven that, that myself and others came up with this week as we were talking through this message Seven things you can do to help you through some of the darkest pain in your life. And some of this will come from Ruth and some of it won't. The first one is to affirm it. The first thing we need to do is affirm it. 
Sometimes we want to ignore our pain, pretend it isn't there, make believe that it doesn't actually exist in our lives. And, and the reality is we, we need to just accept the fact that yes, we are in pain and it's not that that feels good, but sometimes that's okay. At least we need to acknowledge it. Yes, there is pain in our life. Yes, I'm hurting right now. Sometimes what we want to do is just pretend like it's not even there. But we need to sit down and just be honest with ourselves. I'm hurting right now. Sometimes we need to do that with other people. Sometimes when other people try to comfort us, they try to get us to get beyond this too quickly. They, they, they want to take our mind off of it as quickly as possible. And that, and that can be helpful at a per, certain point. But the first thing you have to do is just say, I'm hurting right now and you're hurting right now. And, and that's okay. We can sit in that for a little bit. It's okay for just to, us to acknowledge the fact that this is, this is painful. This hurts. The second thing we need to do when we're in pain is we can mourn in it. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, there's a time for mourning. We, we may want to get through that as quickly as possible, but sometimes that's not a healthy thing to do. Sometimes we need a period of mourning. This is why we go through a process after a loved one dies. We go through a process of certain things that we do, and there's a visitation or a funeral or a memorial service and, and other things that we do to try to re remember the life of the person and celebrate the time that we had together because there, there's a good thing to mourning. There's probably a lot more loss that happens in our life that we need to be willing to take the time to mourn that we often just sort of skip over. But it'd be so much healthier for us if instead of allowing that to turn into bitterness in us, we just allowed ourselves to, to mourn in the sadness of it and do that together. That's okay. It's okay to do that. You know, in, in preparation for this week, we had a preaching brainstorming meeting and uh, one of the ladies in the meeting said that the extent to which we grieve is the extent to which we loved. When we lose something valuable, sometimes the pain that we feel is our evidence of how real that relationship was, how real that love was, how, how much that person meant to us. It may not be someone's death. It could be a relationship. It could be a friendship that's lost, that we grieve, and we grieve the loss of that relationship because it actually meant something. And so sometimes that pain and that mourning can actually be a good indicator of how real that was to us and how important it was. Someone else mentioned this in our preaching brainstorm. Lean into Christ in the middle of your pain. Don't neglect your time in God's word and your time in prayer and your closeness to him. Sometimes we just shut down and we distract ourselves with all these other things and we don't actually walk closely with God in the middle of our pain. But he wants to be there for us. The Bible says he's like a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Even when we're in pain, even more so, he wants us to, to reach out to him. And to have a close walk with him. And here you see in Ruth's response, she says, I'm going to be more committed to God than ever. Even in the middle of this chaotic, painful time where she doesn't know what's going to happen. About to move to a different country she's never been to before. But I will stick by God, Jehovah, and I will stick by you, Naomi, until death. That's what she's going to do. The next thing we need to do, and these aren't necessarily in order, although this is often the order that it would take, is to seek help for it. Sometimes we push people away and we isolate when we're in pain. And what we ought to be doing is being transparent and vulnerable with some trusted people and letting them know this is where I'm hurting right now because they can help you. This is one of the reasons why we so value groups in this church. Because I tell you, in some of our groups, our small groups and our Sunday morning groups, we have had incredible vulnerability with each other, including my group about the pain that we experience and what we're going through and to have those other people who can listen and affirm and just sit with you in the sadness and mourn with you and pray for you and encourage you and comfort you. It's how God designed the body of Christ to work. And so we need to be willing to seek help for it. Sometimes we need to seek Christian counseling. 
for things that are going on. There, there are issues that we face in our lives and pain that, that may not even be related to what's going on now. It may be related to something in our past, a past relationship, our, our family, our upbringing, all sorts of things that a Christian counselor can help you dive into and understand why is this pain coming up again and again for you? Why is it so hurtful? Why is there so much bitterness still there? Why is it affecting the relationships that you have today? And so we need to seek help from others during our pain. It's how God designed the body of Christ to work. And we need to learn from it. We need to learn from the pain that we go through. Yesterday, we had a memorial service here at the church, and it was a beautiful service, and several people shared testimonies of a longtime member of this church who went home to be with the Lord a short time ago, and just how serving they were, and, but, but how deep the pain was of feeling the loss at the same time. And this is a quote that was shared. Dick shared this uh, about his wife passing away. He said, this is from C.S. Lewis, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. God shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Sometimes God is trying to speak to you through pain, and maybe it's because it's discipline or just because he's allowed it to happen. Maybe it's something someone else did for you, but still he allowed it to happen because he's trying to teach you something through it. And so when you're experiencing pain, instead of just thinking, woe is me, why, God, are you doing this to me? Maybe it's time to lean into it and say, God, are you trying to teach me something through this? Why are you allowing me to experience this pain? You're going to see that what God does through the pain of Ruth and Naomi is bring about incredible blessings in the future, but they don't know it yet. What if you're in that season of life right now where you don't know yet how God is going to use the pain that you are experiencing? The next thing we can do, and I'm in the middle of our pain, which is so hard, is rejoice in it. We can rejoice in our pain. We can find reasons to be joyful. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians that we should rejoice in all of our circumstances and everything we're doing. Just the fact that Jesus saved us and he's given us a hope of a better future in heaven, no matter what we're going through right now, as hard as it is, we can still rejoice in it. And then the last thing we need to do is help others with it. Sometimes God allows us to experience pain because he's going to turn that around and then use us to help others going through a similar pain. We've seen that again and again. We saw that just, rec just recently here with an interview that we did with Jane Slater, and we showed it in the service, and how many of you have reached out and said, that was so meaningful to me and impactful. And we've seen it over and over again, how stories of people who've gone through difficult times can be such an encouragement to other people to stay strong in their faith and grow close to Jesus in the middle of it. So when you're going through pain, don't be afraid to affirm it. You can mourn in it, lean into Christ in it, seek help for it, learn from it, rejoice in it, and help others with it. And that's a godly biblical response to pain. I want to leave you with a, a video clip here. And I think this is a, an important one to share with you. I got permission this week to share this. I think it's such a powerful testimony. Many of you are familiar with this, but you'll get to hear it in her own words. About an experience of tragedy and incredible pain and wrestling with God. And the result of that, finding Jesus in the middle of that and having a stronger faith because of it. We're going to watch a video testimony and then we're going to sing a song about Christ being magnified in our lives. And if you are struggling with pain in your life today, I want you to encourage you to just listen carefully to the words of this video and the words of this song. And afterwards, if you need someone to pray for you for whatever pain you are experiencing, 
please come up and pray with one of our prayer team members, or if you're online, go to efree.org connect and let us know how we can be praying for you. Let's watch this video. I grew up in a very athletic family, tennis, horseback riding. My earliest memories of um, hearing about the God of the Bible, though, was around the campfire on the beach of the Delaware shore with my sisters, my mom and dad, hearing stories of Noah, David, Moses, Daniel. But God really, really, he, he really wasn't very personal. All that changed, though, when I was a 14-year-old kid, went away on a kind of a church weekend retreat. And I was challenged by the speaker. He said, kids, I want you to measure your lives up against the Ten Commandments. Well, I had never committed adultery or I don't think I, I stole anything in a big way, but you know what? It, it didn't matter. As I measured my life up against those commandments one by one by one, oh, I, I got this overwhelming sense that I'm missing the mark. I'm not gonna make it. Oh, God, help me. It troubled me at first that God gave us a bunch of commandments that he knew very well we couldn't keep. But then it hit me at that weekend retreat. It hit me, that's why Jesus came he was the one who kept the commandments. He was the one who obeyed the law, even though I didn't and even though I couldn't. I was only 14, but um, I was able to reach out right then and embrace Jesus and say, I, I need you. I, 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 I want to make it out of earth alive, and you're my only passport, so please. Well, I came home from that weekend retreat, all fired up, all pumped, all excited. But then um, through high school, um, the enthusiasm of what I had done began to wane, especially when I started confusing the abundant Christian life with the great American dream. My prayers were so self-centered, like, uh, God, help me to lose weight. God, I need a new boyfriend. God, give me good grades on this test. Unfortunately, I guess I thought I had done God a great big favor by accepting Jesus as my Savior. And I remember right around my senior year of high school, I prayed, Lord, I, I'm, not, I'm not doing this Christian thing right, and I know it. I don't want to go off to college and defame your good name, smear your reputation. I know it's about far more than just me, so do something in my life to jerk it right side up, because I'm really living this life wrong. Just a few weeks after high school graduation, as I was preparing to head off to college, my sister Kathy invited me to go to the beach for a swim. I swam out to this raft, athlete that I was, I didn't even touch bottom, hoisted myself up onto it and then took this really stupid dive into what ended up being extremely shallow water. I snapped my head back when I hit bottom and it crunched my fourth cervical vertebrae, severing my spinal cord. There I was lying face down in the water, desperately hoping that my sister Kathy would please notice that I had not surfaced from my dive. Unbeknownst to me, her back was turned to me. She didn't even see me take that dive. But a crab bit her toe. And it so startled her that she quick turned around in the water and screamed to me, Johnny, watch out for crabs. And when she did, she saw my blonde hair floating on the surface. I was face down, ready to drown. She came swimming quickly, pulled me up out of the water, and I never, I never was so grateful for fresh air. She saved me, but for what purpose, for what reason? Because now, lying there in a hospital, doctors told me I was going to 
have to sit down for the rest of my life as a quadriplegic without use of my legs or, or even my hands. My hands don't work. And I remember thinking, God, is this, is this your idea of an answer to a prayer to be drawn closer to you? If it is, you're never going to be trusted with another one of my prayers again. I mean, I'm a new Christian. How could you have taken me so seriously? I sank into deep depression. I remember there were wonderful Christian friends who came to the hospital and they encouraged me. And one Bible verse they shared was from Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, where God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans not to harm you, but to help you, plans to prosper you and to give you a hopeful future. God, you, you mean you plan not to harm me? Well, what do you call quadriplegia, huh? What's that all about? As I read that verse and the context around it, I realized something, that when God said that, he was saying it to his children who were being dragged away into captivity by, by the Babylonians. They were going to exile. They were going into slavery. They had decades in front of them of hard, awful suffering. And I began to see that God's plans for a hopeful future for me was not necessarily jumping up, dancing, kicking, doing aerobics, running, walking, getting back use of my arms and my legs. No, God's plans for me go far deeper, a deeper healing, a precious healing of the soul. Because as I was pushed into the arms of God every morning, and that's the truth, even to this day, don't be thinking I'm an expert at quadriplegia, but as it was then in the hospital and as it is today, every morning I wake up saying, Jesus, I can't do this thing called life. Please help me. Please show up. Give me your smile. Give me your strength because I can't make it through the day. And because I go to God with that earnest dependency and, and requirement of His grace every single day, I take that back. No, every single moment I experience the sweetest, most precious, most intimate union with Jesus Christ. So in Jeremiah 29, when God says he won't harm us, doesn't mean the body, doesn't mean our circumstances. He's not going to do anything to harm our soul. Yes, our body may get harmed, but it will somehow serve to enrich our soul. In closing, let me just say that quadriplegia, 46 years of it, that's a long time. I deal with chronic pain. I, um, I had breast cancer a couple of years ago, and I remember I remember as my husband was driving me home in the van from chemotherapy one day, we were talking about how suffering is like little splashovers of hell, kind of like waking us up out of our spiritual slumber. And then we, we pulled in the driveway and he said, well, then what do you think splashovers of heaven are? Are they those easy, breezy, bright times where everything's going your way, where you have health? And we said, no. Splashovers of heaven are finding Jesus in your splashover of hell. And to find Jesus in your hell is ecstasy beyond compare. And I wouldn't trade it for any amount of walking in this world.